when we learn to hate sin rather than just avoid it or bemoan its difficulties, we will then learn to mourn properly over it. And our grief will not be over the difficulty that sin brings or the harm that the people have done to us, as great as that may be. Our weeping in any given circumstance be because of our own sinfulness. Of people that will, will come and, and, and they'll, they'll weep over the difficulties of things done to them. And you guys, there's a time when that's totally appropriate. Hard things happen. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday, weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Physical anguish, emotional distress. Ezekiel 7.16 is a really fascinating passage. We're talking about the, the judgment upon Israel in the end times and, and how what God will do in the day of the Lord. He says, even when their survivors escape. So there are some who escape from this judgment. It says they will be on the mountains like doves of the valleys. They've escaped. You'd think they'd be rejoicing, but they aren't. It says all of them are mourning each over his own iniquity. That's what sin does. Even when you've been granted escape in one sense. These guys have been given salvation from the physical destruction, and yet they're mourning over their sin because it, in essence it means more to them. It is that weighty to them. That even out of salvation, as it were, this physical salvation, that their own iniquity matters. Because we live in a world where it's easy to find places of comfort. You know, we just go and, and sit in our own homes and turn on the air conditioning and play some music and say, oh, I feel better now. And that's how we try to escape from the difficulties of life. But you can't or shouldn't be as a believer able to escape from the sinfulness of your own soul and the sins that you have committed. You can't turn on the music and, and get some salvation that way if you're a true believer. Your heart, you're consumed with the nature of your iniquity. Not in the unhealthy ways we talked about, but in the right healthy ways to see it as the violation, as the evil that it truly is. If you're a true believer, your sin should be, and ever increasingly is, ever before you. That is the sins that you commit. And you desire to get rid of them as quickly as possible. Now, this true mourning over personal sin also involves, really fundamental to it, is that it is focused on God. That's what keeps it from being this morbid introspection that drives you down into despair and depression. It has to focus on God. Now turn to Psalm 31, where David speaks of this direct concept. Again, fascinating, as in Psalm 32, he starts with where he got to after mourning over sin. So in Psalm 51, the first couple verses are telling us this is how David cried out, but then the verses following are telling you how he got to that stage. So he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. He's calling out for forgiveness. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions. He's putting it in the present tense. I know them. I'm aware of them. They're weighty to me. That's why I'm crying out for forgiveness. Against you, he says, and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Very, very important, that last part of verse 4. Sometimes we'll just point to, look, you need to focus on God. Your sin is against him. It is. It's not that it isn't against others and that it shouldn't be weighed to you when it harms them. But the end of verse 4 tells us why David realized it was so evil, because he understood that God was just and that God was justly judging his sin. This is incredibly important for you because at any point where you feel vindicated or justified in your sin, you will not mourn. Instead, you will make excuses. My parents did it. My economic state is causing it. The president, it's the president's fault. It's the fault of my kids. They're just not doing what they're supposed to. If just my boss at work were better. See, I, it, we will take some accountability for our sin. Yeah, I know I sin. You got me. But deep down inside, fundamentally, we are not saying this. God, you are justified when you speak. You're blameless when you judge. Your verdict on my sin, that it is heinous in your eyes, that it is worthy even one sin of eternal hell, you are just. And only then will you actually mourn over your sin. To the extent that you recognize and acknowledge that God is just in judging your sin, just in bringing discipline upon it, it is to that extent that you will actually mourn. And so you need to flesh that out in your life. Who are you blaming? Who are you saying is really at fault? And so your mourning is mitigated. It's less. Well, yeah, I think that sin is bad. But as long as you're blaming your mom or blaming your in-laws or blaming your sickness, as long as you're blaming those things, you will not mourn. You will have an excuse. You will have your way out and you will not deal with sin properly. This will keep you from coming into the kingdom, yes. It will also, also keep you from experiencing blessedness within the kingdom. Because even believers can do this. They parlay their difficult circumstances against the true evilness of their sin, and they do not mourn as they should. You do it, I do it. And therefore, I do not mourn. When I focus on God, I remove all the excuses. I don't remove the, the weightiness of having harmed someone else. Don't misunderstand me. I don't say, oh, it doesn't matter that I hurt you. It's just God I hurt. No, by focusing on God, what I'm saying is he's the one I'm guilty before ultimately. It is he who justly judges me. It is he who is right to condemn me for my sin were he to do so even unto eternal hell. So what are you blaming? What excuse do you have? Instead, focus on God. He gives you none. Now hear me carefully. I am not saying that people don't make it easy for you to sin. They do. And that their grievous sins against you, sometimes horrible sins, abuse and, 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 and murder you know, of others close to you, rape, those are horrible things. And they make it very easy for us to sin. But they are not excuses at the end of the day for us to violate the character and nature of a holy God. Why? Because he made provision. Because he gives you a place to put your righteous wrath even against sins against you, which is at his own feet. He gives you the strength and power to, to truly forgive. And not taking hold of that, becomes that, that's your problem. So I'm not saying that there aren't things that are, are so weighty that this is difficult to do. I'm saying that the power of God and the provision of Christ are sufficient so that you are never without excuse. And any sin you ever commit is always yours alone, totally. Do you believe it? Only then will you mourn over it. Only then will you hate it. 
because you're taking full responsibility, that you are the one that violated the character and nature of a holy God. And only an understanding of God actually brings that, if, if, if against him and him only have you sinned, and he's the grandfather upstairs who just kind of does whatever you want, well, then that's not a very weighty thing, and there's not much grief. Yeah, I harmed him, but what's the big deal? No, the righteous, holy God, the one who's infinitely perfect and above us, and yet also the one who in love and grace gave his own son to die for us, that's the one you're violating. That's the one whose character and nature you have trampled underfoot, and the very sacrifice that he provided for you, you have stomped upon in your ongoing sin. It's weighty. It should cause mourning. It should cause grief. Perhaps not literal weeping and wailing, although sometimes that's appropriate, but certainly an inner heart understanding of the grievous nature. Now, another incredibly important part of this mourning over sin is that we have to reject the pleasure of sin. See, here's the thing. The reason you're sinning is because you like it. Now, you might be saying, whoa, no, I don't like the sin I'm in. And as a believer, I understand what you're saying. I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. And that way, yes, I understand that. But if you continue in sin, if you're still doing something sinful, it means you chose that pleasure over the pleasures of serving God. Some, in some way, that sin was giving you enough pleasure that it overrode your desire to please a holy God. You've got to recognize that. You weren't forced into it. You're not doing, well, I'm doing it even though I don't want to. Again, at one level, if you're looking at it as, as through the eyes of God and through what a true believer ought to do, yeah, you're doing it because you don't, and you don't want to. But in your sinful self, as you continue that sin, you chose it over honoring and pleasing a holy God. You chose it. Because at some level you wanted it. Well, how do I know that? Well, turn to James, which is the other, it's kind of the New Testament expression of Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. James chapter 4. Sometimes, um, well, it is often a much misunderstood verse. The whole context here is about repentance, how we repent. And really, it's, it's a similar thing. We At the end... We get to what it's going to take in order for us to actually repent. So he talks about, oftentimes people jump right to verses uh, like uh, verse 8, James chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You need to do that. Unbelievers coming to Christ for the first time, recognizing their need of him. Believers in an ongoing way, eradicating the sin nature within them and, and pursuing righteousness. But notice what verse 9 says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And I think that's often misunderstood because you're going to wait a minute. I'm not laughing about my sin. No, fundamentally what that, what, what's underneath that is this. You're taking pleasure in your sin. That's what laughter is. It's the expression of your pleasure. And what the world does, they laugh at their sin. We're not just talking about riotous parties where people are, well, you know, laughing uproariously. We're talking about every act of sin a believer does. He's laughing in the face of God. He's finding his pleasure there. That's the idea of sin. It's bringing you pleasure. He goes, you're going to have to stop having sin bring you pleasure. Stop laughing. Instead, start mourning. Stop holding on to that sin as something that secretly it gives you a kind of enjoyment, whether it's the bitterness you hold and, and that as you hold that bitterness against someone else, it makes you feel good just to have the bitterness. As opposed to having the joy of releasing that bitterness and forgiveness to a holy God. So you have liked, enjoyed the bitterness more than you have enjoyed the forgiveness that should be extended through God. Do you see it? Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy, the joy that you are finding in sin, let it be turned into gloom. It's a horrendous thing that you're doing that. 
And again, I'm not just talking about the wild parties and, and, and adultery and the revelry that you see out there. I'm talking about the joy that you find when you're jealous of another, when you're covetous of things that you wish you had. You hold that because you find a joy in it. Stop finding joy. Stop laughing about your sin. Instead, mourn over it. Weep over it. It's a grievous evil in the sight of God. It violates his character. That bitterness you hold, that lack of forgiveness you hold towards your spouse, you're holding it because at some level you enjoy it. Stop rejoicing. Stop taking that and using it as a, as a means of your own pleasure to really harm another in your mind. Even though you're not, you're just harming you essentially. It flows out in bitter words and harm towards them. That somehow that, that's a benefit to you. That, that should just cause you to fall on your knees. It's evil. We, I weep over that. Because I hate and I abhor that sin. Unfortunately, the, the world and, and even the Christian world is really good at making jokes about evil, sinful things. And remember, it's really easy and some levels to just put it off on that. You know, those movies and that entertainment, even Christian stuff that makes fun of sin. I don't do that. Well, I hope you don't, but unfortunately, many of us do that. We laugh at those things. We find that, that frivolous presentation of things that ought to be sacred and holy, and, and we laugh when they're twisted and, and contorted, and we think it's funny. But that just reflects the nature of our own heart, to find pleasure in things that displease a holy God. Track that down. Stop that. And track it down back into your own heart to see where you're holding on to a sin and actually delighting. Because I'm telling you that anytime you are actually holding it and not forgiving it, you are delighting. The Bible is telling you that. You are finding your pleasure in it. Mourn. Weep. Romans 12, 9. As the Apostle Paul moves from the, the blessings of salvation and the greatness that God has provided into the, the nature of offering our bodies as living sacrifices, in Romans 12, 9, he says this, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Not try to avoid what is evil. Not try to stuff down what is evil and, and do enough good to overcome that in, in the sense of, you know, I'll, I'll balance it out. No, abhor it. To, to want to throw up over it. It's an incredibly strong term. So it got thrown in a pile of manure head first. I mean, you would abhor that. You would be up pretty quick out of that, just throwing it off your face, right? It's what sin ought to be like in your heart. It's what it ought to be like in, when, it, when it comes out of your mouth. I can't believe I said that. I abhor that. It makes me sick to my stomach that I would say that or do that. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. And when we abhor it and then we do it, we grieve. Because you can say all day long, I hate sin, I abhor that, I don't want that sin. And yet if you are allowing anywhere that you are allowing ongoing patterns of sin or even sinning in, in, in essence in the, in, the, in the moment without grieving over it, you certainly do not abhor it the way that you ought to, and neither do I. I need to grow in this abhorrence of sin. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, not avoid it, not whitewash it over with humor, not pretend it's something that it is, not explain it away, not justify it, hate it. And when you start to hate it, then you'll put it away. When it, when it truly, when you abhor it, when you cannot stand to be in its presence, what happens? You aren't in its presence. You are doing everything possible to get out of there. And so if you aren't, at some level, you don't abhor it enough. When we learn to hate sin, rather than just avoid it or bemoan its difficulties, we will then learn to mourn properly over it. And our grief will not be over the difficulty that sin brings or the harm that the people have done to us, as great as that may be. 
our weeping in any given circumstance be because of our own sinfulness? How have people that will, will come and, and, and they'll, they'll weep over the difficulties of things done to them? And you guys, there's a time when that's totally appropriate. Hard things happen. But, but so often in those kinds of situations, people will weep over thing, hard things done to them. But rarely will they weep over their sins in response or their sins that they have committed to in, in those situations. Rarely does that happen. Would it be that we were more quick to weep over our own grievous evil than even over the evil that others do to us? I think you will find that pattern in the life of Christ, will you not? When did he weep? Did he weep on the cross under the great burden? Now, he sweat drops of blood. This is incredibly difficult. Yet his weeping is seen where? In, 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 the, in the sin that brought death for Lazarus. Not in, his, in those things that brought difficulty to himself, but weeping over the sin that brings death, the sin that brings those things. And then this will also mean this true mourning in our own personal sin. It will, it will drive us to a willingness to confess sin. You see, when you actually hate it, when you actually mourn over it, when you're weeping and wailing over the evilness of your sin and how it has violated the character and nature of God and trampled underfoot the sacrifice of Christ, then you want to confess it. You want to be done with it. But only then, if you don't abhor it, if you're not weeping over it, then you're just going to continue to clutch it. And you might say, you've, you, know, you might offer up false, you know, oh, I'm so sorry and I didn't mean that and I, I won't do that again. But it's not true repentance. It's not true confession because it wasn't true mourning. Back in Psalm 51, James 4, Psalm 51, verse 8, Psalmist says, Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Forgive me. Cries out in the first two verses. Deliver me. Provide for me your loving kindness. I'm in desperate need because I have really actually sinned and you're right to judge me. Probably the best place to see this, this willingness to confess sin, a true repentance which flows out of a true sorrow is in 2 Corinthians 7, 9. So turn there if you would. And maybe even all the way up to this time, you haven't quite believed me. Is it really necessary to grieve over sin, to mourn and weep? Is that really necessary in order to truly repent, in order to truly deal with sin? Well, I believe the passages we've already turned to would clearly indicate that, but this one nails it. Nails, nails the, the, puts the nails in the coffin of my not having to weep. 2 Corinthians 7, 9. And I rejoice, says the Apostle Paul, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. You see, there's a real sorrow that the Apostle Paul wanted produced in their life through the letter that he wrote, so they would grieve over their sin, but not the sorrow of the world which is I'm, I'm so upset that that happened and I don't like the circumstance and I don't like how that reflects on me and I don't like the inner turmoil that's in me because of this. No, it's a sorrow that is according to the will of God and it produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. I can't tell you how many times that people come in, they have a certain problem or issue and they say, I'm sorry for that, I've confessed that. And what happens is that over time, pretty soon what I find is that repentance is with regret. And although they confessed it up front, pretty soon I find they've got a whole series of, of reasons why they did it and excuses as, uh, around it. And what I find is that repentance was just simply a worldly repentance, a worldly sorrow. 
And when they start working out of the initial problem and, and things get a little bit better for them, all of a sudden that disappears. I'm like, whoa, whoa, where did that go? Where did, I'm so sorry, I did that, that's my fault. Where did that turn into, it's their fault, they did it. I, what happened? It was a repentance with regret. They went back on it because they didn't really grieve their own sin. It was, it was fake. It was a false sorrow. They weren't grieved over the fact that they had violated the character of God. They were simply grieved because they weren't getting what they wanted. There will be a willingness to truly confess sin when there is true sorrow. And we will sincerely cry out to the Lord. Number five here is this morning then, the mourning over personal sin will also lead to, and a mourning over sin in general, will lead to mourning over the sins of others. You see, the true mourner of his own sin grieves over the sin that he sees in the world and the sin that he sees in others. Ezekiel 9.4, the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in their midst. But you understand that that's the same kind of sorrow. You see, you're not grieving over the sin of those in society because it, because it harms you, because it makes your life uncomfortable, because it removes from you the joy that you want. You're grieving over the sin of society because it violates and, 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 and destroys or takes from, as this were possible, the very glory of God. And you hate it because he is not being reflected properly, not because it bugs you and because it gets in your way. See, so often that's our anger at the sin in society. Not because God's name is violated. Now, again, for many or most of you, I'm convinced that there is much of that there. That your hatred of the sin that you see around you is bound up in your love for God. And yet you need to flesh out and you need to, you need to root out those places where even your sin or even your mourning over the sin of others is largely rooted in the fact that you don't like what they're doing to you. And you don't like the results for you. Psalm 119, 136, the psalmist says, My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Not because, in essence, they harmed me directly. Although the psalmist, he'll grieve over that. But in this case, the whole purpose is they're not properly upholding your character and nature. They're not doing what you say. They're not keeping that that very reflection of who you are, your law. They refuse to keep it. And so I, I weep over that because of the reflection that it brings to you. Now, when you have this kind of true mourning, what will be the results? Well, again, it's back in our text. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happiness or blessedness doesn't come in the mourning itself. Happiness comes from God's response to it. The forgiveness that such mourning brings. Godly mourning over sin brings God's forgiveness, which brings God's comfort, which then brings God's happiness. And that's the progression. True mourning over sin will bring about true forgiveness because there is true repentance. A fake or false mourning doesn't bring comfort because you've never actually been forgiven. Because you weren't truly sorry, didn't have true grief as we have, have described it over sin. But true mourning brings forgiveness. Only mourners over sin are happy because only mourners over sin have their sins forgiven. That's how you get in the kingdom, to have mourned over sin by the Spirit of God awakening your heart to its evil. And it's how you remain joyful and comforted within the kingdom is to constantly recognize your sin and pursue forgiveness, finding the comfort of God in the process. True forgiveness then brings godly comfort. So true mourning brings forgiveness. True forgiveness brings godly comfort. David, again, in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He knows that that's what forgiveness will bring a restoration to the joy of salvation, which, again, he was a believer, 
David truly believed in God. And when he sinned, it didn't remove his salvation. Please don't hear me saying that. I'm not somehow saying, well, you, you can't have any joy at all in the sense of you can't remember and cling to the fact that God has saved you. There is security found there. But the bottom line is you're not experiencing the joy of your salvation, the fruit of the Spirit that is joy when you are not mourning over your sin. And so David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I have it. I need to press on in the joy of it because I was robbed. I stole it from myself in my sin. He says, then I will teach transgressors your way. Sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. You're wrestling with praising God. You're wrestling with ministering to others. You're wrestling with preaching the gospel. You're wrestling with evangelism. Very often it's tied to a lack of mourning over the own sin, over your own sin in your heart that, that keeps you from fellowship with God. And so therefore you have no joy to do those things. You have no power to do those things. You see, my just telling you week after week that you ought to do that is not going to get the job done. That's why I don't tell, you, tell it to you that way. You don't do it because I said you ought to do it. You do it because the Savior of your soul died that you would do it. And he is most glorified when you do it. And when you are harboring sin that you will not mourn over, there is less joy. And you need to be restored. There's less comfort. There is less of, of, I mean, who doesn't long for in the midst of their life, for their, for in their soul to be the kind of comfort which is, it finds rest and peace, not in the circumstance, but in, in the favor of God. And in the joy of sin set aside and forgiveness granted that we feel, who doesn't long for that, but is available for every believer all the time because it's not circumstantially driven. That's the blessedness of the kingdom. You lack comfort, you can find it. Mourn over your sin. Hate your sin. Set it aside by his grace because you hate it and you've mourned over it. You will find comfort. He promises it. And that's the blessedness of being in the kingdom. That three, that godly comfort brings joy. In the, in the presence of God, there is joy. And, and again, for the true believer, you always remain under the saving hand of God. What a blessing. But you do not always remain under, under the, the, the relationally favorable hand of God when you, are, when you are addressing your sin, when you are living out your sin. He hates that. And it mars your relationship. And so as you are drawn close to him in relational joy through the hatred of sin, then you are able to serve and honor the Lord in new ways. Number four here, godly comfort. I do want to remind you of this. It's completed in heaven. It's not completed here. That's why it says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Do you know why? Now, see, we tend to tie that directly to this. Well, when we're in heaven, there will no longer be sinful circumstances, and so I will have joy. And we tend to view verses like Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. I ask you, what is it that brings all of those things? Death and crying and pain. It's sin. And the primary joy of heaven and the primary comfort found there is the fact that we will no longer be sinful. For the first time ever, there will need be no mourning over sin because we won't have committed any. Do you long for that day? That's the comfort of heaven ultimately. Yes, then all the benefits then of the, that circumstantially come from nobody being sinful will be fully yours. But primarily the issue is this. There's no sin to mourn over. There's no tears to cry because sin is gone. That will be completed in heaven. It's not here because you're still sinful and others are and they sin against you. 
Now, I know you're looking at that whole list of things and looking at the clock. I am. You are. They're my application, so I'm just going to give them to you as a list. I've said them all already, but I want to remind you of them as you leave, that these are the ways you live out what I just said. This is a development of true mornings. No verses that go with them, just the list of things. Stop loving sin. Stop loving sin. We've already talked a little bit about how to do that. I'm not flushing that. Stop loving it. Be like Moses, who for the riches of Christ chose not to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a season. Stop living in despair. Set aside your despair and take hold of the forgiveness of God. Stop wallowing in your own sinfulness, which is, which is not true grief. Stop being proud. Stop trying to hide your sin. Own up to it fully. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Stop presuming. Don't presume upon the grace of God to continue your sin. His grace is great, but is extended to those who humbly recognize their need of it. Stop procrastinating. Stop saying you're going to get serious about your sin tomorrow. See, some of you are going to leave from here. All right, we have stuff to do. I got, I, got, I got dinner to have. I got families to take care of. You have that. But you've got sin in your life that you're not mourning over. And, and some of you don't even know why. You know you ought to, but you aren't. You need, to, you need to get on that. You need to go before a holy God. You need to sit down somewhere, maybe giving up your food at some point this week, to wrestle with why you don't mourn over sin. Because that's why you haven't changed it. You're angry at your spouse, bitterness and, and, and anger towards your children anxious about the things of life and about what your boss is going to do. Those are sins. You are to be mourning over those rather than just simply letting them go saying, I'll fix that later. I'll fix it now. May this message drive you to do that. It's going to be a busy week. You have to set aside some things. Stop procrastinating. Study sin. Every one of you here is capable of a study of what sin actually means. If you don't have a concordance, you can come to the church and get one. Almost all of you can get online and get a thousand concordances. You could study through it. You could set your mind to study it over these next three weeks and your life would be changed. I don't have time. I'm busy. I'm going to school. You don't have time to stop, to, to not stop sinning. You don't have time to, you, you must have the time to start hating your sin. Study sin. Study the holiness of God. Look at the holiness of God. You could all study through his attributes. You all have a Bible. And if you would do that seriously, you would be led to greater grief over your sin. Gaze at the cross. And by that, I mean study the cross. What did Jesus do? Constantly bring that before your mind because the holiness of God is most clearly seen here. His justice, wrath, love, and grace meet in perfect harmony. And when you understand the cross, you grieve over sin because that's why Jesus died. And the one whom you love going to death for you causes you to hate the sin that you commit in spite of his sacrifice. And then lastly, pray. Set aside real time to seek the Lord concerning your need to recognize your sin, to understand your sin, to have remorse over your sin, to repent of your sin, and to recover from your sin. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I thank you for the conviction brought to my own heart when I consider my, the areas in which I, I do not hate my sin nearly enough. But I pray that I would be motivated by these very words to pursue the reasons that I do not grieve more over my sin. And I pray for this congregation. I pray for these, each blessed person that you have placed here, that you would give them grace to root out the complacency over sin and to mourn and weep and therefore find your comfort so that they might be able to pursue the work of your kingdom. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.
Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.